Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. We're actually on the final week of our captivity series, and uh, these past last week and this week, we're actually looking at uh, people who are returning from captivity. We're sort of transitioning out of this quarantine phase, or at least the strictest part of it, into some uh, next phases as both a church and society. And so we're really taking a look at uh, the Babylonian captivity and the way in which the people of Israel, the people of God, uh, were sent away as captives. And now we're looking at stories of them coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to the promised land. So uh, today we're looking at the book of Ezra, which is actually a pretty cool, pretty short book. You should definitely check into it uh, if you've never read it before. Uh, Basically, the people of God come back. They start building the city of Jerusalem. They have the permission of the king. And uh, then they start rebuilding the temple. That's really sort of the main focus of Ezra. Uh, These people start coming back to Jerusalem and they think the first thing that we need to do is to make sure that we have our place where we can worship God. Our our sort of uh, place where all of our religious rituals are done, where we can offer sacrifices. That's the most important thing to getting our our community, our country, uh, everything back on track. So uh, they go back, they get permission from the king, then all of a sudden they start getting opposition, and the king that gave them permission dies, and then another king comes in who doesn't know them, and so there's all this sort of like back and forth with them and the people around them, and all all the time it kind of feels like one step forward, two steps back, you know, but they're able to sort of celebrate through this and and be able to uh, recognize Passover uh, for the first time since they have been sent away to captivity. They're able to uh, give sacrifices at the temple, which is like a really, really cool moment. So definitely read through, check that out. Uh, But eventually everything gets back on track. They get permission from the king to continue building. And even the king sends like money and gold and and resources and stuff like that. It's really, really cool uh, for them to be able to sort of build that back up. And then this happens. Okay, so this is where our story goes today. In uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says this, After these things had been done, everything I just told you, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Don't forget them. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race is mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So, uh, basically, as a recap, in case you got too hung up on the Amorites there to really pay attention, uh, the people of Israel get sent off to a foreign land, and then they come back to Jerusalem. They got the temple going and everything like that, and it is brought to Ezra's attention that the people that had been sent away to foreign lands actually married uh, people, married women, it says specifically in here, married wives from this foreign land. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, like, well, why is that really a problem? Or is this just some sort of, like, wacky Old Testament racial elitism? And I would say to you, uh, no, I don't think that is. And and here's just sort of a few reasons why. Uh, First, this is actually just a way of separating the people of God, which as you look throughout the entire Bible, that's something that is uh, pretty consistent all the way through, uh, that God has chosen his people as a separate, as a holy race, uh, set apart unto himself. 
We even see this in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says this writing to Christians. So after, you know, any sort of like racial divide or any sort of like uh, national identity of being Jewish is erased. So Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God. This is in the New Testament. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So right there, he's saying now the distinction is no longer like, do not marry the Amorites. Now he's saying, do not marry someone who's an unbeliever. He goes on in 15, he says, what accord has Christ with Belial, which is uh, an ancient false god? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? He's saying right there that this is just not something that should happen. Believers should be separated from the people around them. They should be distinct somehow. For the ancient Israelites back in Ezra's time, this was also a break of their covenants with God. Uh, so in Leviticus, it says that uh, Israelites are not to marry uh, the people of foreign lands, uh, foreign people. Uh, it actually does uh, disrupt the connection, the covenant sort of contract that they have made with God, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so this is sort of a breach of that contract. Now, interestingly enough, especially if you're still hung up on like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Uh, converts were okay. So let's say that uh, you were someone and you got connected with Israelites and then you found out that their God was the one true God and you're like, I want to follow this God. Even if you were an Egyptian or an Amorite or a Hittite, whatever you were, you could actually become what was called a God-fearer and convert to following the one true God, to following uh, Yahweh of the Israelites. And if that was so, then you could be a non-Israelite and marry an Israelite. That was actually acceptable in God's eyes. That was not a breach of the covenant. And in fact, if you look throughout Jesus's lineage as given through like the book of Matthew in the introduction, uh, you see that there are actually non-Israelite people who are present in even Jesus's lineage. This isn't just a, a hyper, uh, hyper, you know, separated kind of group, but more it's a distinction of like, these are people of God. Uh, Malachi, who would have been a prophet who was writing around the same time, also says this. He makes mention of uh, Jewish men who had gone over to Babylon as a part of captivity and then had divorced their Jewish wives to take on non-Jewish ones. And so not only is this just a, a muddling of uh, the Jewish cultural or national identity, uh, this is also a representation of, of some really nefarious stuff. That's, that's really, really dark uh, to be taken in captivity, divorce your wife, and then marry someone uh, that you are uh, in captivity around or even one of your captors. And finally, and I think this is why it's most important, at least in this part in the story of Ezra, uh, as they're heading back to Jerusalem, as they're heading back to Israel from Babylon, they're trying to redistribute land rights. And so they're trying to figure out, like, who uh, who owned this land before we went to captivity? Whose land is this family's? And so here you have these, like, very, like, uh, muddled family ties that you can't really even trace anymore. And now you're trying to establish, like, who is supposed to live there. And all of this is happening along the backdrop. I know that's just a very sort of, like, you know functional like tax and property right kind of thing to land on but all of this is happening along alongside Ezra trying to reestablish a god following society and basically what he's saying is if we're going to truly do this if we're going to be a people who are chasing after god if we want a uh, an Israel that is strong, that is following after God that is chasing as hard as they can after him uh, for three generations from now 
we have to make sure that the people that right now we are establishing, the, the people, the identity that we are choosing to be is an, a people of God followers, the people who are chasing hard after God. And the idea there is that all of these uh, other people from other uh, places with other religions, probably more specifically with other religions, are going to inhibit that from happening. The lesson here for us, I think, is very simple. Don't marry a Hittite, which is pretty safe because I don't know if Hittites actually exist anymore. So you're all right there. No, uh, I know it sounds cheesy and this is this is kind of a you know hokey application. But I think in some ways this is like a lesson uh, from Scripture to say don't hang out with those kids. You know, like uh, your parents always used to say that, like they could sort of sniff it out and spot somebody like, ah, that's a bad kid. Don't hang out with them. And you're like, no, no, they're so cool. I want to hang out with them. And you got like in this whole big, you know, push and pull as a kid, like I feel like we've all been there. But now that I'm older and I actually look back on that a little bit, I realize that you're the people that you hang around with really do help to shape your beliefs. Right? Like, uh, you are kind of a conglomeration, an amalgamation of people that you hang out with. Like, right now, if you could give me a list of your 10 closest friends, or 10 closest personal relationships, whatever that might be, might be a parent, might be a spouse, might be friends, whatever that is for you, I bet I could interview those 10 people and draw up a semi-decent picture of you. Right? Like, I could probably figure out the type of shows on Netflix that you watch. I could probably even figure out maybe your political leanings or persuasion. And that's not to say that you're not different and distinct from those people. But if you get enough of these voices, and especially the closer these voices get to you, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to really distinguish yourself from them. The closer and more intimate that a relationship is like that, the more and more you start to look like each other. Sarah and I have seen this uh, throughout even our marriage, right? We've been married for nine plus years now, and uh, it's astounding we are starting to look like each other. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. Not like in a creepy, you know, people look like their pets kind of way, but more in a like, uh, it's weird how more and more we just share the same opinion about things. In fact, uh, I actually got in trouble with my family when we first started dating or first started getting really serious because they said that I used to be really, really funny. And it was really, really funny because I was super sarcastic and I loved making fun of people. But Sarah, if you know her, is just this, you know, petite little angel who's never said an ill word about anyone. And so I lost some of my funniness because I started acting more and more like her, which was a growth point for me. But, you know, the funniness is it's sad. We miss it a little bit. It's a thing. All right. So I understand. But all that to say. Uh, the people that you put into your life, the people that you hang out closest with, the people that you hang out most with have an effect on you. And it would be ludicrous of you to not recognize that. It would be crazy to not actually recognize that the people that you are hanging out with are going to affect the way that you think at every level imaginable. Sit back. Think right now. Think to yourself, like, how have the people around me affected me? Like, especially think about, like, uh, you know, big political topics or big, like, you know, cultural movements that happen in society. Like, don't your closest friends and the way that they feel about one of those hot button issues, don't they make you start to think about those issues that way? Don't they affect the way that you are thinking? Now, uh, I want to give the biggest caveat ever right now because I don't want anyone to, to mishear me. You need 
deep, intimate, life-giving relationships with people who don't look anything like you, uh, with people that don't look anything like Jesus. You need them with even with people that don't like, like Jesus at all. Uh, you need them with people who will challenge you, who are of different religions or philosophies or political persuasions or whatever. You need that. You need to be challenged. You need to be pushed. Uh, we all need to learn to listen. We need to learn to be able to have a polite conversation, a civil conversation. Even when we disagree, you need to be able to have relationships with people that are completely different and opposite of you so that you can grow as a human being and so that you can share the good news of Jesus. But, here's a big but, you should not marry those people. They shouldn't be your best friends. You should have deep, personal, close, your closest possible relationships with people that look like Jesus. Look, I know what I sound like. I sound like some sort of old fuddy-duddy legalist, and that is not at all who I am trying to be. But I am just saying, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you recognize that it is easy to be swayed, it is easy to be tempted, it is easy to be drawn away in this life, it is easy to buy into the lie uh, that there is something else to this life other than Jesus, that we are not living in the kingdom of God. If it's easy to be drawn away from living the life that God wants you to do, then you have a responsibility to surround yourself with people who are going to look more like Jesus and to help you look more and more like Jesus. And really, that's what the church is, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. A group of people who are around you who are all chasing after the exact same goal and who are willing and able to help each other along that way. Now, uh, final caveat, don't go and break up or have an awkward, you know, dumping conversation with your best friend. Uh, that is not the point of this at all. In fact, the New Testament uh, church actually dealt with this a lot of what to do if, you know, one spouse becomes a Christian, the other spouse is not or, or whatever. Uh, so there are plenty of sort of options and definitely uh, do not go out and get a divorce. Uh, the New Testament speaks very directly to that not being the solution to this problem. Uh, and if you have any questions about that, we would love to walk through that with you. I know it is a, a sticky and different situation uh, to, to sort of walk through. Now, uh, that was all just a side thing. That's not even the point of this sermon, but I feel like I had to adequately explain like what exactly Ezra was mad about. What I want to do right now, and really like the main point of this sermon, is like I want to see what happened when Ezra was confronted with this sin. So uh, he was confronted this only when he was thrust back into real life or thrust back into Jerusalem. So in captivity, maybe he wasn't even aware of this thing happening, or at least maybe it didn't bother him. Now all of a sudden they get back into Jerusalem, and this is a big deal to Ezra. Now, uh, something similar has probably happened to a lot of you because it's happened to me. Like, uh, being thrust back into some semblance of real life makes me consciously aware of the things that have changed about me or things that are kind of weird about me now. Like, you don't realize that you haven't showered in three days until you start talking uh, to another human being. Or uh, you don't realize that you haven't been wearing underwear until your neighbor comes and walks by and has a conversation with you on the porch. No judgment. We've all been there, okay? You don't realize that you've gained 10 pounds until you have to put on pants that are not elastic around the waist. It's a real thing. Now, uh, it makes me realize, though, in thinking about going back to real life, and especially as it pertains uh, to the church, 
makes me realize some things about what we've been doing that are funny. Like, uh, and maybe even in some ways, like, not working. Like, I'm thinking about, you know, opening back up, and we'll have some more details about that coming soon. Uh, we're not going to be opening up next week, so uh, just continue to stand by. We'll be sending stuff out to you. But it's been making me think a lot, like, stepping back into real life, like, what are the things that we need to bring back? What are the things that we don't need to bring back? What are the things that are important? What are the things that are not important? You only really get confronted with those things when you start thinking about real life again, post-quarantine life. Here's how Ezra responded, and this is, I think, a great example for anyone who is in leadership or anyone who's leading uh, anyone, really, and as a part of the uh, body of Christ, as a part of the church. It says this in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat, sat appalled. This was all sort of like a, uh, a pattern of lamenting that was present uh, in the Old Testament. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord of my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for your iniquities have risen higher, or for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Can I just point out something uh, really astounding about this passage? We do not have any evidence to believe that Ezra had taken one of these foreign wives, that Ezra had actually committed this sin. And yet, he finds out that this sin is present in his community, and it leads him to the most uh, dramatic, even painful weeping imaginable. I mean, it even says that everyone who was a God-fearer was gathering around him just to like watch what was happening it was so dramatic he's like pulling out his hair he's tearing his clothes he's sitting there uh weeping mourning fasting over the great sin of his people and it's not even his sin he is taking their sin upon himself i think this shows us something really important about the community of god the true believers are, are uh, not marked by trying to avoid responsibility in fact, uh, you know, a lot of times when you really like feel like you're actually right, you do this sort of halfway apology. This is not at all what Ezra is doing. He's not trying to prove uh, that he was distinct from them, that he, you know, was better than them. He wasn't doing the same sin. He's not trying to uh, punish them for what they've done. He's not like, I'm the leader, so you guys are all wrong. Now I'm going to get on to you. No, his very first step is saying, I am taking their sin on myself. I am taking their iniquity on myself. I'm taking their brokenness on myself. And I'm weeping for what we collectively have done. I actually went to a college called Mercer University, and uh, there's this cool statue of the founder there in the center of the campus. And uh, he was actually an old Baptist preacher from way back, and he had a bunch of quotes around him. One that has just always stuck with me. Uh, that I feel like I would look at it every time I walk past it and just cannot shake it from my mind. He says uh, that if you cannot talk, stand up and cry, for this is the loudest preaching that you can do. And that's exactly what Ezra is doing here in this passage. 
it's really kind of interesting too, and I don't want to get too far off on this tangent. Uh, but even this past week, and now multiple times even through quarantine, and multiple times through the recent past, there have been incidences of violence against uh, racial minorities here in America, and they are disgusting. And I think the most possible frustrating thing about all of it is that we, uh, a lot of us who are distanced from these situations, a lot of us who uh, you know don't have any sort of association directly uh, to the people like George Floyd who are, are hurt in these situations or even killed, we feel so powerless. We feel like there is absolutely nothing that we can do. But Ezra's example here shows us that we ought to be people who can stand up and cry, who can show that we weep with and for victims of racial inequality and violence. We ought to be people who can weep with people who are broken, weep with people who uh, hate a broken system. We ought to be people who can stand up and be alongside them in the morning. Ezra even takes it a step further in uh, verse 13. He says this, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, he's still talking to God here, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. This is really the true mark of a Christian. In recognizing even when things have been terrible, like Ezra's processing the fact that his people got sent to captivity for their iniquity, for their sin, and then they still sinned in the middle of captivity, he's saying, hey, God, I recognize you could have done even worse. Like, we deserved much harsher punishment. When you know the grace of God, when you know uh, just exactly what he died on the cross for, when you know the great pain that it must have cost him for every single one of even the most minutest of your sins, all of a sudden it changes the perspective. It changes the way that you look at any sort of hardship or even any sort of punishment from God. And instead of saying, no, I deserve better, I have... I, you know, I'm important. I have, you know, value. I have needs. I have my rights. You stand back and you say, wow, God, you have been gracious and kind to me because I deserve so, so much worse. If you don't know that grace right now, can I tell you that Jesus is offering it to you even right now in this moment? And it's a free gift. If you want to talk about that, by all means, please reach out. You can do it right here. Uh, through a direct message, or you can uh, check out our website, anything like that. Here's how I kind of just want to end, and this might be a little bit strange. I apologize. Uh, I, you know, am not going to tear out my hair like uh, Ezra did. But what I do want to do uh, is I just want to take a second and, you know, here speaking to a video camera, but speaking in some ways uh, to you, our Dwell community, and also feeling like speaking to the world. I just want to repent. I want to take on my own sins and be honest of them and how ugly they are and how painful they are both to me, to the people around them, and how against God's plan they are, and then also the sins of us collectively as a community. That we as Christians ought to be the ones who, like Ezra, take the sins of those around us, ones we didn't even commit, and bring them to God and apologize and weep and lament over them even happening.
I want to repent of believing that working for God is in any way a substitute for being with God. I want to repent of racism, sexism, elitism, anything else that is within me and that I allow to continue to exist in the world around me. I want to repent of the belief that somehow the color of your skin makes you better or worse than another person. I want to repent of uh, the stereotyping that leads to violence. I want to repent of our culture's proclivity towards violence as a solution to problems. I want to repent of all of the pain, all of the sorrow, and all of the ugliness that I just walk by in my daily life. I want to repent of turning a deaf ear to those who are in need. I want to repent to you, especially church, at playing at community and family, of using words like family and then really just having semi-deep friendships instead of committing to it. I want to repent. I want to repent to you, God, of a half-interested Christianity. God, of a, a Christianity that's just looking for the baseline, trying to salve a guilty conscience, trying to make myself feel better somehow. Not chasing after you, the God of the universe who loves me, not serving your kingdom with every single thing that I have. I want to repent of a Jesus and mentality. Finally, I want to repent of not being the church that Jesus wants us to be. God, I am sorry. God, this is your church and not ours. God, let me, I, I repent of ever thinking that it was mine. God, and I repent of letting cultural movements, of letting what everyone else is doing, of letting uh, traditions, whatever that might be, lead more than listening to your voice and following after what you called us to be. And God, we, we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask you that you would lead us into the church that you need us to be, the church of the future, the church of your kingdom and not our own. Thank you, God. We love you. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.